There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, here we are again. Yes. Yes, here we are. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add to there. No, but we are We've here. been talking a lot about market volatility these days and with good reason. But market returns are only part of our investors' overall experience. Because, Greg, we spend a lot of time also talking about planning. Absolutely. And so that planning could be financial planning, tax planning, will and estate planning, maybe even asset allocation, diversification, et cetera. So today we're going to focus on the will and estate stuff. I know we've spent a few episodes sort of on will and estate planning in the last year. But today we're pleased to have join us a friend of the show, a person that we've been working with for a few years now, Catherine Ratcliffe. Kat is a lawyer and partner with Lindsay McCarthy. And Kat, we just want to welcome you to the Free Lunch Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. You bet. Maybe just to kick things off, Kat, why don't you tell us your story? Like, how did you get to where you are today? <laughs> well, it's a long and winding road. I grew up in BC, went to UVic for my undergrad and law school. And about halfway through my first year of law school, just fell in love with the concept of wills and trusts, really connected with property law in general. And so from that point on, that was essentially what I wanted to do with my career. So you go through the standard process, you graduate law school, you article. I was at a national firm and they tend not to do too much of the sort of private estate planning. So I had largely given up on that dream and then fortune smiled upon me and I met Greg Lindsay, who was a partner at the firm and he did private client tax planning. And as it would have it, he needed somebody to do wills for all of his clients. It was sort of a match made in heaven. I started working pretty much exclusively with Greg and doing the estate planning work and setting up family trusts for his clients. And I've never looked back. I've worked with Greg my entire career. When he left that firm and moved over to the firm that is now Lindsay McCarthy, I joined him. And that's the story that's brought me here today. I imagine you work with all sorts of individuals from just individual families up to large high net worth families. And how do you respond if somebody comes in and you have a new client and they come in and just say, I need a will? How do you start? <laughs> it's a great question. So I usually will respond that the will is, of course, critically important and everybody should have one, but it is actually just the starting point. I would say it's, it's almost the bare minimum for what a client should have in order to have a complete estate plan. So I tend to divert them away from the concept of I need a will and into I need an estate plan. And what that really means is before we even start drafting the will, we need to sit down and have a conversation about the client. What's their 
background? What are their family circumstances, assets and liabilities? What are their objectives for their estate planning? How do they want things to be handled when they've passed away? And then identifying any relevant legal issues. Maybe there's a big tax problem that they're dealing with. Maybe they are planning to sell their business and they need some advice around that. Or maybe they have assets in another jurisdiction. That's pretty common and comes with some unique planning considerations as well. We'll sit down, we'll have that conversation, we'll map out what they are trying to accomplish. And at that point, we can start drafting the will. That's a pretty straightforward process back and forth with the client, making sure that the document says what they want it to say. In addition, and at the same time, we will talk about incapacity planning. This is critically important in my view. Everyone needs a will because the reality is everyone is going to die eventually. The less talked about reality is that for many of us, we're living longer and later in life, we may find that capacity becomes an issue. So it may be a memory problem, maybe something formal, dementia, Alzheimer's, or simply that it becomes harder to manage as we age. And so in the event that occurs, Ideally, each of our clients will have their two incapacity planning documents, an enduring power of attorney and personal directive in Alberta. And those documents will appoint substitute decision makers who will then help or take over and make decisions for the individual if they are no longer capable of doing that for themselves. So that's very important. And those documents will be signed at the same time as the will. The third piece, I think, of a complete estate plan involves having discussions with the key individuals that are identified in the plan. So that would be the executors and trustees in the will, guardians if there are minor children, perhaps the beneficiaries if they are adults and mature enough to be part of the discussion, and then the attorney and agent in the incapacity planning documents. So I think that's a piece that's often missed where clients create this plan, come up with the documents, and then don't tell anyone that they're named potentially, or they say you're named, but there's no further discussion beyond that. So that's a piece that I'm happy to talk about in more detail because I think it's really important. The last element of the estate plan, I think, is the review part. You can't just draft a will, put it in a drawer, and then think you're all set for the rest of your life. It's something that does need to be reviewed on a regular basis. And we strongly recommend that you have a conversation with a lawyer periodically. It doesn't have to be every year, but standard rule of thumb is every five years, ideally, just to make sure that the plan continues to be appropriate depending if circumstances change, if the law changes, et cetera. What about when somebody moves provinces? Or let me follow that up with, what if somebody owns property in maybe the U.S. or another province? How does a will come into effect for either of those scenarios? That's a really, really good question. So two separate issues. If you change provinces or if you move to another country, you have to recognize that estate planning legislation is jurisdiction specific. So your documents may or may not continue to be appropriate once you have moved. Within Canada, at least in the common law jurisdictions, so everywhere but Quebec, the law is very similar, particularly on the wills. A will drafted in Alberta very likely is going to be valid in every other province and territory in Canada and probably will overall achieve what the client wants to achieve. 
the question would be, are there planning considerations that weren't part of the discussion when that document was prepared? And just an obvious example here would be someone who has a will prepared in Alberta. The lawyer is not going to be thinking about avoidance of probate fees because in Alberta, our probate fees max out at $525. So there is no value at this stage to doing any kind of planning around that issue for clients who live in Alberta. But if you move to BC or Ontario, where probate fees are quite significant, they are charged based on a percentage of the value of the estate at death. That is something that is typically part of the discussion with the lawyer when you're preparing a will there. And so if you die and you have your Alberta will, but you're living in BC, your Alberta will is probably valid, but it probably doesn't contemplate any planning that could have been done to try to minimize those probate fees. That's change of residence. In terms of staying where you are, but perhaps purchasing property in another jurisdiction, it's a similar conversation in that the property in another jurisdiction, and I'm sort of assuming we're talking real property, you know, an immovable asset that will be governed by the law of the jurisdiction where it's located. And so whether or not that jurisdiction will recognize the will, consider it valid and transfer the property in accordance with its terms is very much dependent on the law of that place. Again, if it's within Canada, you're probably fine. If it's in the U.S., you're probably fine. Certainly, if you tell the drafting lawyer, for certain states, we can do what's called an international will. Sounds fancy. It's actually a very limited use because very few jurisdictions recognize them, but some U.S. states do. And in other jurisdictions, particularly if you're outside of the Commonwealth or outside of North America, very likely the law is quite different and you may really need to get advice from a lawyer in that country and perhaps have a separate will prepared to deal with that asset. Interesting. That's really important to tell your lawyer when you're having your documents prepared that you do have those assets. You should not just assume that I'm doing my will here because I live here and everything will be covered and it will be fine. Raises a point like a lot of people, you brought it up earlier, when you're planning the will, having an inventory of assets is something that I know that my lawyer, when I prepared my will, he asked for. Is that something that you would do then? You would take a look at the assets and identify whether there are some issues that need to be addressed in the drafting of the will? Yeah, absolutely. It may be at the end of the day that the will doesn't need to specifically address most or any of the assets. It may be sufficient to say, I leave everything to my spouse. And then when we've both passed away, divide it all equally between our children without dealing with what happens with the house in Calgary, what happens with the vacation property in Arizona specifically. You kind of leave it to the executors. So that's fine. But if the lawyer is drafting in a vacuum, meaning they don't have a complete picture of both the client's circumstances, their family relationships, and also assets, then we are completely unable to identify any potential issues. So we're not able to say, well, okay, you have a property in Arizona. You probably want to get some advice from a lawyer there to ensure that your plan appropriately deals with that property. Or, oh, I see you have a bank account that's held jointly with your adult child. That's really problematic, not in terms of the existence of the account, that's fine, but there is an insane amount of estate litigation around that particular type of structure, holding assets jointly with an adult child. 
can actually create all kinds of interpretive problems and very often leads to litigation. So that's easily addressed by simply having a conversation to say, well, what's your intention for that account? Is it going to that child when you die or are they essentially holding it in trust for your estate and it's supposed to be divided in accordance with your will? Very different results. And all we really need to do is ask the client the question and then document their answer and it fixes the whole problem. Easy to do, not expensive, but if it's not addressed and then the client dies, you are no longer able to ask that question and the result can be very costly for the estate. Exactly. I wanted to pick up on something else you mentioned as well, and that is obviously having a discussion with everyone that plays a role in the will itself. So the executor, for example, it'd be nice to know that you've been named as an executor in somebody's will. (laughs) What about the beneficiaries as well? And I'm thinking about not only in a typical situation, but maybe in other typical situations these days where there's blended families or second families and addressing maybe, is it smart? or advised to have a discussion with potential beneficiaries to say, look, this is how I'm planning to divide things up. And there's two families involved and make sure everybody knows what to expect. I think in many cases, that is a good idea. Each family has its own particular dynamics. So it does, to some extent, depend on the relationship with each of the individuals and their personal characteristics. But I think in general, if you're talking to adults, explaining at least some of the plan, if not the entire picture, does give them the opportunity if they have concerns to air those while the individual is still alive. So that can certainly, I think, help soothe any hurt feelings, address any concerns, rethink the plan perhaps if what the person was considering isn't perhaps practical. I think it's particularly important when There are certain factors that make the estate a little more complicated. So one example would be in the situation where parents own a cabin or a cottage and they've decided that one of their children loves the cottage and lives in the province and will use it. So they would like to leave the cottage just to that child. And then their other child who lives outside of the province, they say, okay, well, we'll just leave the rest of the estate to the other child. And the values are about equal. So that's fair. And that may be all well and good, and it may suit the children fine, but it may turn out that the child they expected would want the cottage actually is planning to move to another jurisdiction, doesn't have the funds to cover the expense of owning a second property, simply isn't interested the way they thought that child might be. Or maybe the out-of-province child has an interest in that cottage and is going to feel very hurt that they were excluded and there was no discussion. That's one circumstance, I think, where... Why would you not sit down with your kids and say, this is what we're thinking. How does that sit with you? And would you like us to perhaps consider doing something different? Now, another thing that will come up, and you mentioned it earlier as well, is the possibility of needing or using a trust. Can you maybe just describe for people like, what is a trust? And how do you know if you need a trust? Why would you have one? And are there times where it it might overly complicate things as well? For sure. So trusts are a fairly complex legal concept, but to boil it down, essentially when you own a piece of property, there are two types of ownership that you have in that property. One being legal ownership. You are the registered owner. So if I pull the title certificate, I will see your name. And then there's beneficial ownership, which is the underlying, it's not registered, but it's 
a characteristic that actually gives you the right to use the property, enjoy it, earn income from it, if that's the type of property that it is. So that's very straightforward when it's one person who owns the property and they have legal and beneficial ownership together. A trust arises when you separate those two types of ownership. So you essentially have one person who is the legal owner. You have a different person who is the beneficial owner. And specifically when it comes to formation of a trust, there's a third person involved who is the original owner. So essentially, if I'm setting up my will, I say, okay, when I die, my house is going to be transferred to X person and they will be the legal owner of that property. They will be registered on title, but they're going to hold it in trust for my child because my child is a minor and they can't own property right now. So the ex is going to hold that property. They're not actually entitled to live there or use it or receive any benefit. They have to hold it for my child and make decisions for the benefit of my child. And then the trust will determine at what point the child receives the property, or I may give discretion to X to decide, okay, this kid is two years old. It doesn't make sense to hold this property. So I'm going to actually sell it. And then I'm going to hold the funds in trust for the child instead. That's sort of a simple version of a trust. And that's the most common in a will. If you have a minor who's going to inherit or potentially inherit, we will always include a trust that at least requires the property to be held until the minor becomes an adult in the jurisdiction where they live. Depending on the amount that that person might receive from the estate, we may actually encourage the trust to exist beyond the age of majority. If you have two kids and you're dividing a $10 million estate, you probably don't want to cut them each a check for $5 million when they turn 18. Seems like a recipe to ruin their lives. Sounds pretty fun, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Or at the very least, to not have any of that money left very quickly after that check is received. The common approach would be to say, okay, well, how about we have whoever the individual is who's going to be the trustee hold those funds. They can use the funds for the benefit of the children at their discretion. So there's no issue if kids going to university needs money for tuition, the trustee can make that money available from the trust. But the trust may specify that those funds will actually be held until the child turns 25, and then they would get half, and then perhaps the balance would go at age 30. That's just an example. It's entirely customizable, but those come up very frequently. Beyond that, I mean, there is sort of an endless list of circumstances that might justify the inclusion of a trust in a will. So just very briefly, if you have disabled beneficiaries who are receiving government support, you very likely will want to create a trust for them so that you don't put a bunch of assets in their hands that will disqualify them from receiving the support. If you have beneficiaries who have issues with substance abuse or spending or other issues where you're concerned about their ability to manage the money for themselves, that's another circumstance where a trust might be helpful. They're very common for asset protection concerns, particularly, I find a lot of parents are a little bit worried about their children's spouses and wanting to ensure that the family money stays in the family. A trust helps achieve that objective a lot more cleanly than cutting a check to the child and then potentially they just put it into a joint bank account with their spouse. The last one that I do want to touch on, and this is sort of the more complex end of my practice, but It's very, very exciting and interesting. So for clients who are higher net worth and are thinking that 
they potentially have more money than their children really ever need to receive. So I'm saying if you've got 20, 30, 40 plus million dollars and one child, I think you want to realistically think what is going to be the impact on that child if at any age they eventually receive all of this money? Are they going to be motivated to pursue a career? Are they going to be motivated to get involved with philanthropy, give back to the community? Or are they just going to sort of sit and receive their checks and that will be their life? And that money may not last beyond that child or perhaps their children. So that's a big concern for a lot of parents who are in that higher net worth bracket. And so with those parents, we're very frequently talking about the creation of a long-term trust in their will, with the concept being that those funds potentially are never fully distributed. Certainly, they don't all go to the one child or to the children of the immediate next generation. The idea is that we would create a vehicle that would provide for long-term management of the family wealth, certainly give all kinds of opportunities to the children, really allow them to chase their dreams and their passions without any of those limitations as a result of lack of resources, because the trust is there to support them. But then beyond that, you can identify what the family's values are outside of providing for the immediate descendants. You can talk about philanthropy. You can talk about community initiatives. At a certain age, you can get the children involved in that conversation and excited about participating in the decisions. And so the concept there is the children essentially become stewards of the wealth and they teach their children how to do that as well. The family will benefit. Basically, every door they want opened that can be opened with financial resources is available to them. But beyond that, They're helping to preserve that capital. They're helping to promote those family values that their parents instilled. And that wealth gets perpetuated and potentially can do a lot of good for a very long time. So we don't have that issue in my family. Greg, you're lucky. Yeah, no, you're lucky you don't have to deal with that. My parents did a lot of pre-planning to ensure that there wasn't a large estate to distribute. (laughs) So no trust required. So there's obviously costs involved in this work. You're not a charity. What would somebody expect to pay for simple estate planning or complex estate planning? Like, I don't know if that's a touchy question or not. No, no, not at all. I think it's a question that every client should ask early in the process. And I'm going to give the very annoying lawyer answer that it depends. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) But I think I would go beyond that. I would say estate planning is very much an area where you get what you pay for, or perhaps more accurately, your beneficiaries get what you pay for. Most people think that their situations are simple and they just need what they call a basic will. That's true for some people. That's true for lots of people, actually. If you're in a first marriage, you got kids from that marriage, you have sort of standard assets, you've got some value, but not crazy high net worth, probably you would be well suited with a relatively straightforward will. And depending on the lawyer you're talking to, you might be in the range of sort of one to two, maybe 3000, depending on how much customization you want. I do think there are lawyers who will do estate plans or wills for less than $1,000. And I would be at that point, a little bit hesitant to be confident that they're asking all the questions, considering all the issues that might require advice, just because the amount of time you can spend at that point is going to be very limited. But 
for lots of people, there is a benefit to having at least some customization, whether it's a blended family that actually can create a lot of conflict. And so you want to make sure that the estate is properly set up to minimize that. If you have an asset like a family cottage, that can be very difficult to divide. And so there may be some discussion required around that. Or perhaps you need one or more trusts in the will, and those need to be sort of individually customized for the appropriate terms and the beneficiary's needs. So essentially, the cost kind of goes up from that that starting point. But I think it's worth spending the money because at the end of the day, if you don't have a proper estate plan or if you have the basic will that wasn't drafted with your circumstances in mind and perhaps is not appropriate for your needs, you won't know about it because you'll have died. But the people that you leave behind, they're the ones who will deal with the consequences. And I know you've spoken with my colleague, Judd, who does a whole bunch of estate litigation. And we see tons and tons of that. It's been on the rise. I think it will continue to increase. And that's a product of people not having the appropriate planning in place for the most part. And then the beneficiaries sort of being left to fight amongst themselves, fight with the executors, fight with whoever it is they're fighting with. And the funds that could have been left to them from the estate or could have been spent on estate planning while the client was alive, instead are spent on various lawyers who are involved in fighting that litigation through. Greg, I know that we've been spending a lot of time on estate planning recently on these shows, but it's with purpose because, Kat, I'm sure you can back me up on this. And if you can't, just do anyways, please. (laughs) I read that there's the largest intergenerational wealth transfer ever occurring in the next, I don't know, few decades, I suppose. So this is really important stuff. You're right. We talked to Judd Blitt from your firm a week or so ago about the litigation side, but we want to make sure people are set up properly to avoid litigation. Can you maybe just spend a minute commenting on that? You're right. I hear the same statistic all the time. I think it's a product, obviously, of the baby boomers. We had this massive generation that are now, lots of them have passed, but a lot of them are aging and will be continuing to pass away over the next however many years. We're seeing a ton of wealth transfer, and it's really addressing all of those issues that we've already talked about, sitting down and saying, okay, you do have a blended family. So how do you negotiate the inherent conflict between wanting to provide for your new spouse and wanting to leave something for your children from the previous relationship? That's very thorny. There's so much emotion caught up in it all. I think that's something that people don't think about is when the estate's being administered, the family members are not, in many cases, emotionally prepared to think about financial decisions, to have surprises in the will, because they're dealing with grief. So I think taking those steps to come up with a plan that you think works, and then taking that additional step of either having the conversation with the beneficiaries while you're alive, so that everybody knows what's going to happen, and you can deal with any issues now, Or if you're not willing to do that, at the very least, you might consider leaving a letter, leaving a message to sort of explain your decisions, set out your wishes, tell the people that you love that you love them. I think all of that goes a really long way to avoiding the litigation. Something like, I love you, but your sister's getting everything. Love that. (laughs) (laughs) That one might be tough. 
in cases of estrangement, it's very, very difficult when you want to cut somebody out of the will entirely. And so we haven't talked about will challenges. It's not as big of an issue in Alberta as it is in other jurisdictions, BC being one. But even so, cutting someone out of the will is delicate. And they're going to be aware that it's happened. And at the very least, providing some explanation for that may not soothe their feelings at that point. But certainly, if litigation does arise, it provides some really helpful information to the court around your decision making, why you chose to do that, that you didn't just forget about this person and accidentally leave them out. You intentionally did not include them and your reasons are X and Y. So I don't necessarily want to leave it on that note, I think. Well, we can, Ideally, <laughs> We can, because yeah. you know what? We can have you back for okay. further discussions, because <laughs> I think that's probably another important topic to get into. Absolutely. What it sounds like you're saying is something that we preach to our clients, of course, when it comes to financial planning. And it's like, you can't expect to achieve your goals if you don't sort of know what your goals are and they haven't been put down on paper. And I think this just highlights the fact that your financial goals beyond the grave are something that you can plan for and should plan for. And everything you've talked about today, I think, speaks to that. Absolutely. The importance of doing that. So, Greg, would we recommend Kat's work at Lindsay McCarthy to our listeners? Of course we would. Of course we would. I think yes. the people at Lindsay McCarthy are good people and they do good work. So absolutely. Happy to help any of your audience members out for sure. We should finish off with a quick speed round just because it's fun. <laughs> Greg, you want to take us through? Sure. So, Kat, what do you do for fun when you're not giving will and estate advice? Oh, what do I do for fun? Well, nothing for the last two years. Right. Um, <laughs> except play with my COVID puppy. Oh, awesome. So he's been quite pleased with the work from home and is not happy about the return to the office. I'm sure. Apart from that, right now I'm planning a wedding celebration. I got married in 2020 in my backyard with people attending by Zoom. Oh. That was interesting and unique and very memorable. And so now next week we'll be getting together with sort of our best friends and family to wear the fancy clothes and do the photos and have a nice dinner and celebrate. Cool. That sounds great. And congratulations. Thank you. My wife and I got married distantly with nobody there and it did affect the number of gifts we received. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> having a big party at some point is an excellent idea. Yeah, but it affects the cost too, right? Like That's you, true. You're like, your wedding didn't cost you anything. Now you're going to fork yeah. out thousands of dollars. A couple of hundred bucks. So I think. true. Yeah, so true. <laughs> Okay, Greg, next. What are you reading right now? Is there anything on the bookshelf that you're enjoying? I've been going back to Diana Gabaldon's books, the Outlander series. So that's sort of my guilty pleasure. And then I'm also, I'm going to drop the ball and not remember the author's names, but there's this incredible book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. Oh. It's amazing. I'm reading it slowly and I'm going back and trying to redigest because it's starts off with very basic techniques, things that like most people are doing when they're having conversations. And then it sort of builds into more complex ideas, essentially ways that you can talk to anyone, even people that you fundamentally disagree with about any topic and have sort of a productive conversation rather than a screaming match or people needing to basically leave because they can't continue the conversation. Maybe you should give a copy to the Republicans and a copy to the Democrats and <laughs> let them <laughs> work through that. I think it would be very helpful. I actually think it should be mandatory reading for everybody. It's just incredible the way they break it down. 
you talked about you've got a COVID puppy and you've been locked up for a couple of years. So anything you're binging on the streaming services, because certainly that's become a thing. It really has. I followed the trend and spent two years watching everything on Netflix. Recently decided that maybe this is not a good thing for my life. And so I actually have canceled my Netflix subscription. I know it was a big move. (laughs) (laughs) Now I get emails every now and then from them saying, are you sure? Do you miss us? I'm sure you do. I do. I do a little bit, but the expanse is the current go-to. Science fiction. Science fiction. Well, great. Space Cowboys. Yes. Right on. (laughs) Cool. Well, we should wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time today, Kat. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. my pleasure. If anybody has any questions for Kat, let us know and we'll forward them on. You bet. All right. Well, Greg, till next time. You bet. Thanks again, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.